Welcome to Pod for the Cause, the official podcast of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights and the Leadership Conference Education Fund, where we take on the critical civil and human rights issues of our day as we work to save our democracy. I'm your host, Kanya Bennett, coming to you from Washington, D.C. Today on Pod for the Cause, we are joined by two folks who are working tirelessly day in and day out because they know that democracy is on the line. We have Carolyn Shields, who is the president of the Shelby County branch of the NAACP, and we have Duell Ross, who is the deputy director of litigation at the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. Today we are going to be talking about voting rights upon the 10th anniversary of the Supreme Court's decision in Shelby County versus Holder, which gutted key protections of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Now, this is not a celebratory anniversary. In fact, this is a rather somber occasion, as we know the Shelby decision has resulted in increased actual or attempted voter suppression. Political participation and election outcomes have been shaped by Shelby and not in a good way. Fortunately, we have some expert guests on the show with us today who will help us talk about what is at stake. Duell, this year marks the 10th anniversary of the Supreme Court's decision in Shelby County versus Holder in 2013 and its dismantling of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. In Shelby, the court ruled that states that had historically discriminated against black voters no longer had to get federal approval or Section 5 preclearances, as we know it, to modify their election laws. Talk to us about the court's decision and how it has impacted voting rights over the past decade. Yeah, so unfortunately, over the past 10 years, what you've seen is a backsliding in voting rights. You've seen states like North Carolina and Texas immediately after the Shelby County decision go forward with uh, really restrictive thing, uh, voter ID bills, which luckily in the cases of North Carolina and Texas were struck down, but in other places like Alabama and Virginia were actually put in place and disenfranchised thousands of voters. Without those protections of the federal government sort of intervening on the front end to make sure that laws that are passed are non-discriminatory, you're seeing a lot of things that are creeping through the legislative process without being successfully challenged in federal court in the way that it would have been possible to do under the prior federal preclearance regime. Got it. Thanks for that. Can you talk to us a little bit more about what this looks like nationally. So I want to talk about the 2022 midterm elections. We are fresh off of that and about a year and a half before we go into the presidential election and another round of congressional elections. While the Republicans took control of the House in 2022, they have the majority by just a few seats. The Senate Democrats were able to keep control of the Senate. So with that sort of a political representation, a lot of folks suggested that we were successful in defeating voter suppression tactics. The outcome for progressive voters wasn't as bad as folks thought it was going to be. But Duell, we know that there were disparities in voter turnout. There was certainly voter suppression. So talk to us about what that looked like in reality, the 2022 election for voters, voters of color in particular. You know, I think it's really important to think about in terms of 
how voter suppression works, not as Democrats win and Republicans lose. These laws disenfranchise Democrats and Republicans. And ultimately, what we're concerned about is the disenfranchisement disproportionately, either intentionally or unintentionally, of African-American voters and other voters of color. And that doesn't mean that X number of voters maybe have a harder time voting, but they may be actually able to vote. It may be that the grandmother who doesn't have ID is able to go out and pay hundreds of dollars and obtain ID and vote, but that doesn't mean that didn't create unnecessary hurdles for her ability to vote. Or the grandmother who isn't able to vote, her one vote may not make a difference in election, but is important for purposes of the fundamental basis of our democracy, which is that everyone should have a fair opportunity to vote in America. You know, thinking about even on the larger scale of this or of the new laws that are being passed in places like Georgia and Florida that make it harder for people to give line relief to assist voters who are waiting in line for hours in places like Atlanta. That may not ensure that people don't turn out to vote and that certain candidates don't win elections, but it certainly has an impact on people's experience voting and makes it more difficult for Black voters and urban voters to vote. So I think it's correct to say that, you know, it's not a proper framework to say because Democrats won, there was no disenfranchisement of African-Americans or other voters of color. Or And the same is true if Republicans had won, there obviously would have been voter suppression in, in either instance. I want to talk to you about another misperception that I think exists, and that's around voter suppression only happening in the South or the Deep South. Certainly, I think a lot of national attention, a lot of discourse is focused on what is happening in our southern states and many of those that really where voters needed that protection from the Voting Rights Act are represented. But tell us about why this is a misperception that voter suppression only occurs in the South and really that the Voting Rights Act is meant to protect all of us wherever we may reside. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. The Voting Rights Act, even 10 years ago when Shelby County was decided, covered portions of California. It covered New York City, Brooklyn. It covered parts of the country that are often thought of as not in need of protection from racial discrimination in voting. And that's simply not true. You know, the reality is that voting discrimination happens all over the country. What's left of the Voting Rights Act, Section 2, you know, there's a series of recent litigation in New York State to bring representation to African-American voters and Latino voters in places where city councils, school boards, where Black voters and Latino voters hadn't ever had representation. And so it's important to realize that, A, the Voting Rights Act is necessary all over the country, and B, that this is not just uh, statewide instances of voting discrimination. These are also often instances on the local level where Black and Latino voters are growing in influence and in numbers, and local legislators are using their tools to make it more difficult for African Americans and other people of color to actually get representation, whether they're passing things as onerous as cuts to early voting or changes to polling places, or they're using things like at-large election systems to and changes to redistricting systems to manipulate who is able to vote and how their vote is counted. You mentioned Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, and that is actually the focus of a Supreme Court decision in Allen v. Milligan that many of us in the civil rights community, many voting rights advocates are waiting anxiously. We're on pins and needles. And so what's at stake here, obviously, is black voter political strength. Can you talk to us about what is the question before the court in this case? And certainly, what is the argument that LDF made in terms of where the court should come down? So in fall of 2021, 
LDF, the ACLU, and some other colleagues brought a lawsuit on behalf of Greater Birmingham Ministries, the Alabama NAACP, and, and individual voters, including Evan Milligan, our lead plaintiff, challenging Alabama's congressional maps. So Alabama elects seven members of Congress from seven single-member districts. Only one of those districts is majority Black. That means that Black people only have guaranteed representation in 14% of Alabama's congressional districts, even though Black voters make up 27% of the Black population in the state. Our argument was not about proportionality, though. What it was about was that there's a region of Alabama called the Black Belt that runs through the middle of it. It's a place that has a deep and important history in America. It is where Martin Luther King began his ministry, where the Montgomery bus boycott was, where the Selma to Montgomery march that led to the Voting Rights Act occurred. And the Black Belt is a place that also is unfortunately very affected by its history as a place where African Americans were brought and enslaved for hundreds of years and unfortunately suffered under Jim Crow for at least 100 years more. And so the result of that is that the Black Belt is a region that's extremely poor and extremely under-resourced. And even though it's a region that is well known both historically in Alabama and across the United States, In Alabama's congressional map, they chose to divide it into four congressional districts, even though the state knows that it's possible to draw two districts that encompass most of the Black Belt and are majority Black and actually will lead to Black voters having a fair opportunity to elect candidates of a choice in those two districts. One other thing I'll say just on the demographics of this is that Black people have a fair chance in about 14% of congressional districts. That means that white voters in Alabama have basically a guaranteed chance to win in 86% of Alabama's congressional districts, even though the white population in Alabama has slowly been shrinking over the last 30 years, going from a high of around 75% down to a low of around 65% now, even though that has slowly changed in the last 30 years. White voters, because of the way in which Alabama has drawn its congressional districts, have continued to maintain that sort of set number of representatives and political power in the state. Those facts are what led our clients to bring this lawsuit. We were successful in front of three federal judges, including two judges who were appointed by President Trump. They unanimously found in January of 2022 that Alabama's congressional districts violated Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And what that means is they said that the way in which Alabama had divided the Black Belt was racially discriminatory and that Alabama was required to draw a second district that would give Black voters a fair opportunity to elect candidates of their choice. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court, in a 5-4 decision, put a hold on that successful ruling and set oral argument for the case in October of last year. And we had that argument Myself and the Solicitor General and another attorney from another group of plaintiffs argued the case in the Supreme Court. And Alabama's argument is not necessarily that plaintiffs shouldn't win under the existing standard, as it has been under the Voting Rights Act for about 40 years, but instead that the Supreme Court should sort of throw out the existing framework and adopt a standard of essentially race blindness, which is that as long as Alabama says that they didn't look at or use race when they drew their districts, that those districts are non-discriminatory. And if the Supreme Court were to adopt that standard, you would make it virtually impossible for any state to draw majority-minority districts and for any plaintiff to win a Section 2 lawsuit in the future. Lots at stake here. And again, really, Alabama being at the center of all of this in Shelby County, as we think about it being 10 years from the Supreme Court's decision in Shelby County versus Holder, want to invite you into this conversation, President Shields, and have you talk about sort of what this looks like on the ground to have Section 5 dismantled by the court. Duell was just talking about what's at stake with respect to Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. 
sort of how is this playing out in real life? What does it mean? What does it look like when we have a significant percentage of black voters in Alabama not being given sort of the access to the ballot, access to the representation of their choosing? I tell you what, our biggest problem is overcoming a whole lot of apathy that has resulted from our, you know, inability to get the people to even care, okay? That's why we're doing what we're doing on this 10th anniversary. We are trying to start a movement here that will convince our people of the necessity of getting involved. We have this weekend planned We've included a number of panel discussions that will address each and every area that should be important to all of us, but something should reach even the most disconnected person to get them involved, motivate them to get involved, to vote. It's making them aware of how these things could change if you got involved. Most of them probably are not even aware of the suit that's pending now. And that's one of the things that we'll probably discuss during this weekend. But it's about waking everybody, because that is the main thing that we're fighting here in this state, in addition to, of course, the courts and Alabama's persistence in preventing our involvement, real involvement in the voting process. That's one of the things we're trying to prevent. But am I getting anywhere near to what you're asking? Because I'm telling you, I'm really passionate about trying to get our people involved in what's going on. And we're waiting. We're waiting, too, for this decision. But I don't know if that's going to be enough. You understand what I'm saying? Absolutely, President Shields. And you're touching on sort of what Black Alabamans are denied when they don't have representation in their elected officials. So we know there's, you know, denied equal access to health care, equal opportunity for education. A whole range of policies we know stand to not reflect the interests of, of Black folks in Alabama if they don't have electeds who are championing their interests. And so, you know, if you could talk specifically about where you have seen some of this opportunity lost with respect to policies, that would be helpful for our audience. I have worked in different areas with NAACP. We've gone to communities where there have been problems. I know that I've talked with people about the importance of their involvement. I say to them, we can come here, we can march, we can rally, but we don't live here. And your leaders recognize that. And if you don't come out in large enough numbers representing a vote, each of you, they don't care. I mean, we've gone into some areas that had some really significant problems with policing, a number of things. And we tell them, in order to get change, you've got to have your people involved in large numbers. It doesn't work. Our people often think that they're just going to ride it out. And so it's reaching those that's so urgent right now. We don't have all of the answers yet. We want to start with this, but that's our biggest problem. Because if you don't come out in the numbers, they're not listening. They don't worry about it. We can sit in on interviews. It doesn't matter what we say because we don't actually vote for them. I'm speaking from personal experience. I've been in these areas. And we've set up marches, rallies, and I've said to them, you've got to get your people out. 
get them out here. And we come down for a march or a rally and we've got maybe 100 people. That's not going to get our point across. They're not worried. No, that's, that's, that's not, not going to do it. <laughs> President it's Shields, not going yeah. to do it. You know, we're still trying. And this weekend is our big effort to start a movement here. We'll have to keep it up. This is the first one. We may not get the participation this time that we want, but we're not going to give up. That's our issue. That's that, right. That's our issue. Shields. And it's not just the low income, economically challenged section of our society. It is those who have made it who really don't have a beef. Sure. You understand? That's a problem, too. So we want to, during this weekend, show everybody that there is something here. There is something here that affects you, and you need to get involved. And if maybe if not for yourself, for others. Having worked with the Alabama NAACP on sort of making sure that there are opportunities for representation, I think of, you know, we brought a Section 2 case in Pleasant Grove, Alabama, a suburb outside of Birmingham, to change that method of election. And before the lawsuit, the five-member city council was all white. And after the lawsuit, we were able to change it so that now the majority of the city council is black. And so I think to President Shields' point, it is about getting people out to vote, but it's also making sure that when people do show up to vote, that those systems are fair. Because oftentimes, if you're dealing with an unfair system in which you know that your vote is not going to count, then there's not necessarily a lot to go out and vote for. The more that can be done to make sure that election systems are fair and that all voters have the opportunity to get out to vote, I think will impact the issues of voter turnout and, and voters' willingness to come out and spend their time and energy to make sure that their representatives are actually responsive to their concerns. Duell, thank you for demonstrating, right, the, the positive outcomes that can come here. I do not, even though the anniversary of Shelby is a somber occasion. I don't want folks to walk away with a sort of doom and gloom perspective about the state of voting rights nationally and at the state and local levels. I'm so glad you raised that and really gave that as an example of how we ensure that, right, to President Shields' point, yes, we need to make sure folks understand sort of what's at stake here, why they need to exercise the right, how policies of interest are only going to be advanced when you have electeds who share that same agenda and do well like you you're saying we need to make sure, though, that beyond just casting that ballot, that folks are able to do it in a fair way where their interests are actually going to be represented. And so I want to close us out here with a sort of call to action, a sort of solutions oriented ask for our audience. So, Duel, let me start with you. Where will we find sort of success in the protection and preservation of voting rights? Is it in the courts? Is it through federal legislation? What should we be thinking about? To both President Shields' point and in your question, you know, I think that there's still going to be opportunities for litigation challenges to racially discriminatory laws, and that litigation is one piece of it. The other really important piece is what President Shields is saying is to getting folks out and making sure that people are fully informed of what their rights are and their ability to vote and making that as easy as possible. And then on the legislation piece, it's absolutely critical that Congress does restore the Voting Rights Act. Unfortunately, there hasn't been as much movement on that piece as we would like, but there still has been movement on important voting rights acts at the state level. So Connecticut just yesterday passed a statewide Voting Rights Act that is probably the most comprehensive Voting Rights Act, state-level Voting Rights Act that's ever been passed. 
You've seen similar movement in the last few years with New York and Virginia passing statewide voting rights acts. And so those are really important protections that even though Congress itself has not acted, that states are sort of trying where they can to fill the gap. And that kind of advocacy is really important all over the country because it builds momentum for a federal change, both in the courts and in front of Congress. That's exactly right. Well, President Shields? That's another thing we hope to do with this movement inspire others to do the same thing in other jurisdictions, other states, so that we can really get the Congress to listen to us. You know, we're going to have to start by getting things like winning this Milligan case so that we can have more representation in the legislature and increase our odds, okay, so to speak. But that's where we are. And I think where you both ended up is, look, we've talked about federal legislation that may be at a standstill at the moment. But really, we're talking about sort of the will of the people. And so the conversations, ones like we're having today, need to continue. The work that is happening on the ground, the work that is happening at the national level with respect to litigation and advocacy are all important pieces that we need to continue educating the public around. And I feel fairly confident trying to shed some optimism into this end note here that, again, if we call upon the people to stand up and preserve and protect our democracy by exercising that right to vote, we will prevail. We have seen time and time again the ability, the will of the people, the majority of the people to overcome what often is a minority of folks who are looking to maintain political power and control, which unfortunately have to do such through extreme measures like we see in certain states, including Alabama, which obviously has been the focus of conversation today. So, Duell, President Shields, thank you so much for joining Cod for the Cause today. It has been great for you to come on and, again, talk about what's at stake here and motivate the people to appreciate that as well. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us today on Pod for the Cause, the official podcast of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights and the Leadership Conference Education Fund. For more information, please visit civilrights.org. And to connect with us, hit us up on Instagram and Twitter at civilrights.org. You can text us, text civil rights, that's two words, civil rights, to 52199 to keep up with our latest updates. Be sure to subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast app and leave a five-star review. Thanks to our executive producer, Evan Hartung, and our production team, Shalana Hunter, Dana Craig, Erica Sutherland, and Brandy McGee, as well as our in-house voting rights experts, Leslie Prohl and YT Bell. And that's it from me, your host, Kanya Bennett. Until next time, let's keep fighting for an America as good as its ideals.